If you would remain standing and open your Bibles, we're again in the Gospel of John, continuing our study there. This week, chapter 20, as we continue to look at the resurrection of our Lord. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for time in this gospel. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work today, shaping us with this message of peace and sending us in your power. Lord, these are too great to ask of me or anyone here. We need you to be at work within us. Would you be pleased to do that work? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we asked the question, what does it mean that Christ was raised from the dead? We saw in the life of Mary, that she was an emotional wreck. She was a mess. She was consumed by tears and grief. Then she saw this glorious vision of angels seated where the body of Jesus had been laying, one at one end and one at the other. Then she turns away from the tomb and encounters Jesus, not dead, but living. For Mary, seeing Jesus turned her sorrow, her grief, into joy, utterly transforming her life. Today, our text opens again with these words on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Again, I think John is taking out a, a highlighter for us on the reality of this new day, the dawning of a new week, Sunday. We saw him do this a couple of weeks ago. John keeps reminding us that there's been a major shift in all of creation. Before the, the time of worship and rest for the people of God had been at the end of the week, and here there's this major shift New creation is dawning now on the first day of the week. The book of Revelation refers to it as the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. John writes this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice 
like a trumpet the first day of the week. That's the first day of the week. This day of resurrection has shaped all the Christian world and continues to shape you and me today. Today we'll continue to ask the question, what does it mean that he is raised? How does it change anything? How did it change the early disciples and how does it change us sitting in this room today? This is the first sermon of Jesus. Sermon simply means to proclaim, to preach. Jesus is preaching here. What what is going to be the content of the, the first preaching of our Lord after his resurrection? We don't have to guess. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have what he said to his disciples, to this little locked away church. We'll look at our text in two parts today. The first is scars and peace. And the second is power and authority. First, scars and peace. Look at verse 19 again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The disciples are gathered together. We know this is not the twelve, but likely ten. We know that Judas is clearly not there. He's dead, having hung himself after betraying Jesus. We know from verse 24 that Thomas is not a part of this group either. So there they are, gathered together for fear of the Jews. Behind locked doors. We might be quick to condemn them. I think often we give the disciples a bad rap. Like if you knew the end of the story, you wouldn't be scared. You wouldn't be behind locked doors. But we shouldn't do that. They had seen the brutal death of Jesus on a cross. They had seen him mocked, spat upon, beaten, scourged, then nailed to wood. Let's not see them in this moment as less than courageous. They are being courageous. The people of God were still gathering themselves together. This example is worth noting. They're not giving way to weakness. Yes, they are afraid. Yes, the doors are locked, but they're gathered together as the disciples of the Lord, despite the fear and the looming threat hanging over them. They're still together. This is the first Sunday gathering of Christians after the resurrection. Since that time, the people of God have enjoyed more than 100,000 Sundays together. Times of worship of the risen Christ. When I read this verse earlier this week, I thought about the the many millions of Christians who have existed in this world under threat. I've read stories of Christians, and so have you, all over the world who have lived their Christian lives in fear. People even today in other parts of the world meeting to worship God like this behind locked doors. 
with shades closed, singing but very quietly so that the people in the next apartment can't hear, hearing the word of God proclaimed but not through a a mic in a big room, quietly, lest the wrong person hear and come and overthrow those worshipers. See, the resurrection even changes them. Even in fear, the resurrection is changing all things. Just as Jesus came to Mary in her grief, he now comes to his disciples in their fear. They are terrified. Into this locked room, Jesus comes. Let's emphasize that again. It doesn't say anybody got up and unlocked the door and let him in. It doesn't say that he knocked. It says they're in a locked room and Jesus was standing in their midst. We see something utterly amazing in the body of Jesus. He has a physical body. You can touch his scars. You can see him. You can hear his voice coming out of his mouth. And yet these physical parameters have no sway over him anymore. One thing that we see in Jesus coming to the disciples in this manner is this, that all barriers between fellowship with God and sinful man are now utterly wiped away. There is no barrier for him. So what is his sermon? What does he say? What does he announce when he gets in their midst? In this room are people who have betrayed him. Peter three times, very clearly. In this room are those who were nowhere to be seen as Jesus was judged, mocked, beaten, scourged, crucified. Most of them had scattered just like he said they would, like lost sheep without a shepherd. They ran away scared. Is he going to call down judgment on them? Is he going to curse them to eternal fire? What is the message that he gives them? Peace. Peace be with you. The Hebrew rendering, shalom alechem. Peace. Peace be with you. Let that sermon wash over you today. Peace be with you. I think this is a difficult concept for us, especially in our day of anxiety and fear on every side. The disciples had huddled themselves together in a locked room and Jesus then stands in their midst announcing peace. Peace. Do you remember the birth announcement of our Lord? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. This is exactly what he had come to do. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus says, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither be afraid. Peace. Three times in this text, Jesus will announce peace to the disciples here. Verse 20, verse 26, peace. 
peace, peace. Why? Because their souls are so conflicted. Their souls are warring inside of them. And it's not just them, it comes all the way to us. Our souls, our inner selves at war. But not just our inner selves, the culture around us embroiled with war. Spoken and unspoken resentment is everywhere. How, to some degree or another, every single one of us follows politics, war on every side. In our own system and in our world, war has raged for over a year in Ukraine. It's ongoing in Afghanistan, several places in Africa, Syria. Civil wars are raging, resulting in significant casualties, displacement. Our world is full of conflict and so is our inner self. Our words and the tone of voice we use with even with those we love, not just with our enemies, but with those we love. We're quick to go to war every single day. Even though we may not be physically at war, we have this inner conflict. What is it for you today? What is the cause of your fear and your anxiety today? Listen to Jesus again and again and again announce to his disciples who had seen horrible things and who were afraid on every side, peace. Peace. The biblical concept of peace is much bigger than just our inner awareness of calm. It actually means that the kingdom of God has dawned. It, biblical peace, shalom means this, Things are the way that they are supposed to be. Sometimes we hear of peace. In the Old Testament, these concepts of God making things right. This is all anticipated in the Old Testament in the Aaronic benediction. God lifts his face to us and gives us Peace. And these concepts get jammed together throughout the scriptures. You cannot have peace apart from the presence of God himself. It's impossible. For peace to be present means that God must be present. How is this possible with a sinful people? The text tells us we don't have to wonder how could he offer peace? And this is really interesting. Verse 20, when he had said this, peace be with you. Listen to the link. He's jamming these concepts together. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus is not offering them platitudes. When he comes to them in this locked space, he's not giving them a slogan that is going to go on a t-shirt to influence politics. He's saying the warfare between me and you is over. 
peace offered by Christ comes with scars. This peace, again, is not a platitude. It is a person. The person of Jesus Christ. He's proving this peace is possible by showing them, look, they nailed me to the cross. Look at my side. They speared me through. I died, is what he's saying. Peace to you, because I died. I died to give you peace. That's that's the link between peace and scars. Because Christ has died, he has paid the wrath of God, we have peace with him. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, peace. The wounds of Christ are his credentials to offer suffering human beings peace. There's a bit of a poem by, I wish I could read it all to you. It's it's pretty lengthy by Edward Shalito. After the First World War, he writes this. If we have ever sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have the sight of the thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. He's exactly right. We must have a Jesus with scars if we're ever going to have peace. Inner peace, outer peace. Peace with God and peace with our fellow man. It's going to have to come from a Jesus of the scars. What happens when the disciples have this announcement and they see the scars? It's what should happen in the heart of every single believer in this room this morning. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were full of joy. Just like Mary's sadness turned to joy in encountering the living Christ, so their fear is transformed to peace and gladness when they meet Christ and see his scars. He's alive. Utterly transforming their fear and anxiety into gladness and joy. Jesus is offering them true peace. And what will prove that this is not a platitude is it's not like life is suddenly going to be great for these guys. Church history is going to record that every single one of them, maybe with the exception of John, who who is going to be exiled and then die in exile, the rest of them are going to die as martyrs. Jesus is not saying, hey guys, because I died, everything is going to be good for you now. You're good to go. You're never going to have to worry about where to get your next meal. You're not going to have to worry about what clothes you wear. Everything is just going to be fine. You're all going to have like middle-class lives. He is not saying that. Their true warfare, the warfare between God and, and sinful men has been dealt with. Now they're going to be able to do really hard things. Peace. Peace in the midst of incredible pain, not to to stop the pain. We we will continue in our lives to struggle. We will hear, again, the news that a loved one has died. We will have that news. 
We will pick up the phone and we will hear devastating things. We will hear the word cancer. We will still have miscarriages in our world. You'll still feel like you're at war sometimes with your job and you want to do anything but go to work. In your marriage, you're, you're still, you're still going to struggle. And to all of this, the risen Lord has come showing his scars and announced peace. Christian joy for the disciples is not this notion that everything is going to be okay. Again, true peace, shalom, means that things are as they are supposed to be. And this is how they're supposed to be. Jesus Christ, who was dead, crucified on a cross, is now alive. That is going to transform everything for these guys. The peace that Jesus offers them is not cheap. Again, it's not a platitude or a slogan. Peace with God for you and for me is not cheap. We, we did nothing to earn it. We do nothing to deserve it. It is bought by his scars. By his wounds, we are healed. In the incarnation, Jesus put on flesh and blood, a body that could receive these wounds. In the resurrection, he now has a physical body. He is the firstborn of all creation, the agent of the new creation. In the beginning of John's gospel, we see that Jesus is the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power. And here at the end of the gospel, we see Jesus as the one who is making all things new. Do you know that Jesus still has a body to this day? perfect. It's not like ours. He will not get cancer. He will never die, but he's still embodied. Once he took on flesh, he, he did so for eternity future. He's still embodied. We too will look on his scars and see the cost for him to come and announce to us peace. Peace. So here Jesus stands in the room he was locked out of, announcing peace and showing his scars. But what does all this mean for the disciples, for the early church, and for you and me? Power and authority. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Then this peace is going to form the foundation of what he says next. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Here is the great commission of John's gospel. It's founded on peace with God. Then it comes with a command, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. These men in this room will be known as the apostles, which simply means sent ones. I think we can easily jump to all the things we're supposed to be doing or the apostles are supposed to be doing without first going through and acknowledging what he is calling them to be. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He is calling them to be a part of the very work of God in the world. 
Just as he had been deployed by the Father into the world, he is now saying, you, disciples, you are being deployed into the world as emissaries, as agents. Jesus is offering this analogy between his mission from God and our mission from him as his disciples. First off, we have to acknowledge that, and we have to make this abundantly clear, this might shock some of you, you are not God, and neither am I. You are not God. This is an analogy he is drawing for us. The single controlling awareness in this life of Christ is this. He was sent by the Father, and he knew it. It controlled every single thing he ever did. John 17, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He had always been like this. This is the nature and at the core of the Trinity. John 8, 28, and he who sent me is with me, Jesus says. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. More than that, Jesus knew that he was utterly loved by the Father. He knew exactly who he was, and this is a vital for mission. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. We could go on. And on and on. Jesus, this is so important in our day. Jesus knew who he was. He knew his identity down to the marrow of his being. He knew he belonged to the Father. Do you know that? He is inviting us into that certainty and the reality of who we are in him. Just as he has been sent by the Father, deployed in his love, so we are being sent by Christ, Jesus is sending his disciples into the world to carry on his work. Then we read this strange, strange verse, verse 22. And when he had said this, he, he had announced peace to them. And it just, he says, just like I was deployed into the world, so I am deploying you guys into the world. Okay? And when he said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Really? When he commissions the disciples, he breathes on them. What, a, what an odd thing of Jesus to do. We have to remember what John has been doing all along in his gospel. All along, he's been trying to convince us that here is Jesus, the author of the initial creation and the author of a new creation. A.W. Pink says this, who can fail to see that here in John 20, on the day of the Savior's resurrection, the new creation has begun. Begun by the head of the new creation, the last Adam acting as a quickening spirit. End quote. He's breathing on his disciples, and he's breathing life into them, just as God breathed life into Adam's face in the garden, the first man animated by the breath of God. So the church is animated by the breath of the Lord Jesus Christ and the granting of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the connection between this and our Old Testament lesson? It's incredibly beautiful. 
Just as God breathed life into the face of Adam in the garden, so Christ is breathing life into the disciples here as he commissions them. Our Old Testament text is full of meaning, and you see this as a pattern throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorites is Ezekiel 37. If you don't know what's there, that's your homework today. Go home and read Ezekiel 37, please. It's the valley of dry bones. It's horrible. It's a horrifying vision. There were many bones, and they were very dry. God commissions his prophet to speak life over them. And then we read this. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Breathing life. And look, this is a picture of every single one of us, dead in our sin, behold, very dry bones, and apart from him giving us life, we will not have it. I breathe on them because this is the wind that blows. This is the very wind that Jesus was telling Nicodemus about. What am I, how am I supposed to get any of this? And Jesus' answer to him is, Nicodemus, unless the wind blows, nothing's going to change in your life. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of this, Calvin interestingly says um, that Jesus is sprinkling them with the Spirit. They're being sprinkled with the Spirit. This is a down payment on Pentecost, which is coming. When the Spirit comes in full, that day will not be the breath of the Lord, but a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire coming upon the people. The Spirit will come in full at Pentecost. But here they have a down payment of the Spirit. Wherever we read the Spirit and the Word of God, we need to think, power. Across the pages of Scripture, the Spirit is at work powerfully in the world to create the world and the lives of people in the world to bring about transformation and salvation. We see this work of salvation, light breaking into the darkness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus promises you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This connection between peace in Christ and his scars and then the authority and power and the commissioning of people into the world bearing good news of forgiveness. This giving of the Holy Spirit is needed as image bearers in the world, but it's also the authority, it's the ground of the authority given to forgive or even withhold, shockingly, forgiveness. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Our Lord has embraced here a summary statement of the gospel. Forgiveness comes from him through the office of teaching. 
which is closely connected with this text, central to the message of Christianity is this, forgiveness of sins is available to you. That is good news for us today. Forgiveness of sins. And it's linked to to teaching and taking this teaching into the world. Paul picks up on this very same theme and looks at it through the lens of reconciliation. He says this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and listen to this and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's the exact same thing that Jesus is saying. This text of forgiveness or withholding of forgiveness has been abused through the century. It's been used as a way to somehow grant priests the ability to absolve sinners of their sin. We have to rightly see that we can't offer forgiveness. You and I do not have uh, the luxury of walking up to someone and saying, you're forgiven. That's not what the text is saying. We offer this message of forgiveness before God in the person of Christ. So what is this passage teaching if we can't go go around uh, Shreveport, Bossier, just randomly on the sidewalk forgiving sins? What's it saying? William Barclay says this, quote, one thing is quite certain. No man can forgive another man's sins, but another thing is equally certain. It is the great privilege of the church to convey the message and announcement and the fact of God's forgiveness to men. Church, us, we, Grace Presbyterian Church, are emissaries of God on earth. Our power is not the power of the sword, but the power of the word. We have the right and privilege as the church to announce forgiveness and when someone is off to announce and declare the lack of forgiveness. This is the process of discipline that is embedded in the life of the body. Matthew 18 has a similar warning. If anyone, if any sinner refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Yes, the church has this declarative power. If we see that someone is not living in light of the gospel, we can look at someone and say, You're in trouble. You better watch out. The church has always maintained this as a normal part of body life. Here's the application. In Christ, we have a job. In Christ, we have a task. We are ambassadors of this, with this message of forgiveness on our lips as we live in this world. We are his Emissaries, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Do you go to others with the message of forgiveness? Look, and all of this is rooted in 
we can't forget the first part. It's rooted in peace. It's rooted in his scars. He's saying, look, I have accomplished all of this. Now take this news into the world with you. Are we quick? Here's another way to take our temperature on this. Are we quick to forgive when we ourselves are wronged? Do you remember Jesus forgiving the notorious sinner at a dinner party in Luke 7? He says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Listen, this will take your temperature on this whole notion of forgiveness. If you are not a forgiving person, the question has to hit you, have I received forgiveness? Do I even know what it is? This woman was totally transformed by the love of God and forgiveness, so she is willing to forgive anything because she knows the price of her forgiveness. I think sometimes we aren't quick to announce the forgiveness of Christ to others because we actually believe that we have been forgiven very little. We have a really small Jesus who didn't have to do that much to actually save us. And nothing could be further from the truth. We believe that we have been forgiven little, so we, we only offer a little to others. However, we need to remember the cost to Jesus to forgive. Remember what he does when he shows up in the room and announces? What does he do? He shows them scars. This is what it costs. This is what forgiveness looks like. Someone had to die. And instead of it being those men in that room or you or I, Jesus is saying, it's me. You see what Jesus has done? He has appeared to these men in this locked room, scared, a scared bunch of disciples. He announced peace, tied that peace to his own scars, and even more than that, because he is alive, he is now sending them out. These scared guys, so that's another thing that the resurrected Christ is doing. It is taking these scared bunch of guys and deploying them as, as missionaries into a lost world. How about you today? Has the risen Christ come to you and your fears? Have you encountered him in such a way that you would, that you, even you, would be deployed as the Father had sent the Son, so now he is sending you into the world announcing forgiveness? Has the resurrection done that in you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Truly astonishing Lord, what you have done, you have made peace by the hostility done against you. So much so that the reality of your death and resurrection could actually nourish us today, even as we commune with you. What an astounding reality. Lord, even now, would you prepare us to commune at your table? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.